Genesis 48. We'll cover today these last three chapters of Genesis, but to prepare us for the preaching of God's Word, we'll go ahead and read all of chapter 48. So you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an, for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be, shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me. Here, And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he, shall, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Lord, as we come now to continue our worship by 
looking into your word, I pray that your spirit would come in our midst and give us eyes to see the truth that is revealed in your word. And I pray now as we conclude this series through the first book of the Bible that we would be reminded of all that you have done in the lives of your people up to this point. And I pray that having seen that, our hearts would be comforted and encouraged and strengthened. Our faith would be strengthened to believe that you will do for us what you have promised, just as you did for the patriarchs in the Old Testament. I pray that you would reveal to us ways in which we fall short. And as you do that, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, give us eyes to look again to the cross where Christ provided for us the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins and that our hearts would be turned in repentance in those areas that you reveal to us today. And I pray that in all this, you would receive the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last words are a significant thing. The last words of someone who is on their deathbed, someone who is aware that soon they will enter eternity, the things that that person has to say hold very great significance. Maybe you've had the opportunity to be in the presence of someone as they lay on their deathbed, as they get near to that, that point where they will enter into eternity. And what someone in that position wants to communicate in those final words takes on great significance. Maybe they express one final statement of love to their family members and loved ones that are gathered there. Perhaps it's a faithful believer who is encouraging those there to follow after their Savior the way that they had done in their life. Maybe they're testifying that God was faithful to them. Therefore, you go on and follow the Lord as well. He will be faithful to you. Perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, it's someone who gets to the end of their life and, re- and realizes that all that they had pursued, all that they had done, had been an utter waste of time. And maybe they warn friends and loved ones to avoid the path that they had followed. Whatever those last words might be, I believe they had, they take, they had the tendency to take on added significance because I can imagine that at the moment of death or as death is approaching, all of a sudden everything else is kind of stripped away and a person is able to understand what is truly important, what was truly worth pursuing in their life. Genesis 48 and 49 contain the first recorded last words in the Bible. We have others later on. We have people whose last words or, or words that they spoke near the, the time of their death are recorded. But here in the end of Genesis, this is the first time we have this sort of thing recorded for us. And I believe it serves as a very fitting end to this book of Genesis. 
that we are, that we are reaching now today. This is Jacob's opportunity to gather his family together as he does here and to communicate to them in his dying hour what he believes is important for them to know. What we just read in chapter 48 and what we'll see in a little bit that, J- that Jacob speaks in chapter 49 are things that Jacob wanted his sons and their descendants to know. And I think there's, a, there's an important lesson for us who are people that are called to communicate what God does and what God teaches to those who come after them. This is a theme throughout Scripture. We, we find it over and over again where one generation is commanded to pass on to the next generation the things that they have learned from God, the things that God has done for them. One of the earliest exhortations along this line is written in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God speaks to his people these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you arise. And we could go on and on looking at verses throughout the rest of Scripture where God commands us, He encourages us to pass on that which we have learned to the next generation, whether that be our children, for many of us, or others even uh, who come after us in the faith, that we have the opportunity to teach them, to instruct them, and even to testify of God's faithfulness to us. And as we conclude our study through the book of Genesis, I believe it's fitting that we come to these final chapters, and they include essentially Jacob testifying the summary of what God had done, what God had accomplished in the lives of his people up to this point. Most of the things that we'll talk about are things that we've already seen earlier in the book, things God has revealed about himself, ways that God has worked for his people. And I think this provides a needed reminder again for us of these truths, of these realities. God had clearly done a marvelous and gracious work in in Jacob's life, bringing him to this point. Where Jacob is able to communicate the goodness and faithfulness of God to his sons. And I would call each of us today to consider to what extent we are communicating to others, whether it be our children, whether it be other loved ones, friends, fellow members of this body, co-workers, acquaintances. To what extent are we faithfully communicating the things that God has done to us to others? Because I think it's unmistakable throughout Scripture that we are commanded to do essentially what Jacob is doing to his sons right now, is communicating them, encouraging them with the goodness and faithfulness of God. And I want us to see from these final concluding chapters, I want us to see three ways or three things that that Jacob is communicating to them, three things that, that he wants them to know and understand in the actions that he takes and the words that he speaks to them. 
The first thing that I want us to see that he communicates to them, I want to summarize it by, by saying it's God's ways are not our ways. Jacob or Israel is communicating to his children and by extension to us as we read it here in the scripture that God's ways are not our ways. God works in ways that are far different than what we would expect. Sometimes he works in ways that are different than we would like. God's ways are not our ways. And this is the testimony of a man that at the very beginning of his life was a rather unlike, unlikable character. There was lots in Jacob's life to not like. But I think as we come now to this point where he speaks to his children, speaks blessing upon his sons, that we can appreciate the gracious work that God had done in his life to change his heart and to grow him into the man that can now speak prophetically, to, could be used by God to speak prophetically concerning the future nation of Israel as it was now just being birthed. From, beginning, from the beginning of our, our record of Jacob's life in the book of Genesis up until this point, we find Jacob fighting God's order of blessing among sons. At the beginning, it's a negative thing. He steals his father's blessing. He steals his brother's birthright from his twin brother Esau. He deceives his father into blessing him with the blessing that should have gone to Esau. And now, at the end of his life, Jacob is essentially doing the same thing. But here, it's, a, it's a, an action taken in faith. God, is, God has brought him to the place of realizing and understanding the way that God has chosen to work in the lives of the patriarchs. This scene here reminds us a bit of the scene earlier in the book of Genesis when Jacob comes to Isaac, his father, to receive that blessing. Both fathers are older men. The text tells us that their eyes were failing them. They had trouble seeing. There's two sons that come to their father, or in this case, two sons brought to their grandfather to receive a blessing from God. And so Joseph brings his two oldest sons, the two sons that he that, that were born to him in Egypt before the rest of his family had, had come and been reunited with him. And Joseph, when he hears that his father is on his deathbed, brings these two sons to his father Jacob, to Israel, wants, him to, wants them to receive a blessing before Jacob's death. And as they come up, you can see Jacob takes great care to do everything the right way. He brings his two sons. He brings Manasseh, the oldest of his two sons, and he puts Manasseh on his, in his left hand so that when he brings him to Jacob, he would be on Jacob's right hand, the hand of prominent blessing. And he places Ephraim in his right hand so that when he approaches Jacob, he would be on Jacob's left. But when the moment of blessing comes, Jacob, by faith, crosses his arms so that his right hand is on Ephraim and his left hand is on Manasseh to pronounce the blessing. And it's interesting that Joseph, this, this man that God had used greatly to tell dreams and, and predict the future and even to give insight into how best to respond to that, God did not choose here to reveal what he was doing to Joseph. And Joseph 
adamantly disagrees with his father. Dad, what are you doing? I did everything I could. I, I, I know you can't see very well, but I brought them up so they were right in front of you. What are you doing crossing your hands and now switching the blessing from what it should have been? But Jacob had learned through a lifetime of experience with God that God's ways are not like our ways. And in fact, of all the events in Jacob's life, this is the one, this episode here is the one that the writer of Hebrews chooses to use to illustrate the strength of Jacob's faith. This was by faith that Jacob did this, that he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, the way that he did. This wasn't the result of an old man who couldn't see very well. This wasn't the result of an old man who was tricked into doing something. This is the testimony of, a, of an old man who believed God, exercised his faith, and was used by God to, in this, prophetically reveal God's plan for his people as they grew into a great nation. Jacob wanted to communicate to Joseph, his son, to Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandsons, God's faithfulness to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac, and to him, and confidently expressing that God would be faithful to them as well through the rest of their days. And so this is why I I want us to see, I want us to see this maybe a little differently than we have observed it up until this point where, where we have seen God work and we, we've just observed God work. But I want us to see this more from Jacob's perspective as Jacob is desiring to communicate God's faithfulness to his children and by extension his descendants. Making application for us today, I want us to consider again the extent that we are testifying of God's faithfulness to us I know many of us here could testify that God has been incredibly faithful and gracious to us throughout our lives. Those who are older have a long life of experience with God. Those of us who are, are younger, even, even we have great, great reason to testify of God's faithfulness to us, His goodness, His grace to us. To what extent are we communicating that to those around us? Jacob found it the most significant thing at the the moment or as he approached death. He wanted to communicate to his sons and his grandsons of God's faithfulness. To what extent are we testifying of God's faithfulness to others? Think of those of us today who are parents, who have children. Do our children know that God is at work in our lives? Do our children know that we are trusting God to provide for us? Or do our children get the impression from the way that we live and the way that we talk that it's all about what we can accomplish for ourselves, that we have to go out there and work hard to get ahead? And it's all about our effort and what we can do. But do our children know that we receive everything that we receive from the hand of a gracious and loving God. Do our coworkers and those that 
we have contact with on a, on a regular basis? Do they know that we are trusting in God's faithfulness to us? Do we testify of his faithfulness? Or, we, or do we just, are we excited about good things that happen with no mention of, of God having done that for us? Do lost people around us know that we are trusting God to meet our needs? Do we get excited about what God is doing in us, beginning with his work of regeneration and then continuing on and on and on the numerous things that God does for us, the numerous ways that he provides for us? Are we testifying about the goodness of God to those around us? Jacob was concerned to take care that his children and his grandchildren understood this. He first communicated to them that God's ways are not our ways. God works, God operates in a way that is different from what we would expect. And I think as we have studied through the book of Genesis to this point, we, we have actually now come to expect this. And hopefully that, hopefully that will strengthen our faith in God to, to understand that he works differently than we would expect. Every generation, beginning with Abraham and his children, every generation to this point, you will know God has chosen the younger to receive the blessing over the older. God has made it a point. It's unmistakable up to this point. God has done it every time. He blessed Isaac over Ishmael. He blessed Jacob over Esau. And now he blesses Ephraim over Manasseh and then also, by extension, over the rest of Jacob's other sons, as we'll see here in a minute. So it should be obvious to us that God operates differently than we would always expect. And may God use the things that we have learned about him to strengthen our faith that when, we're, when we go out from here and we begin to expect God to, to act in, in certain ways, we expect God to do for us things, may he give us eyes and hearts to wait on him, to respond and looking for, for thing, looking for him to work rather than expecting him to work a certain way and, and pursuing that to the exclusion of just sitting back and waiting for God to reveal his will for us. Jacob wanted to communicate to his descendants that God's ways are not like our ways. God's ways are better than our ways. The second thing that Jacob wanted to communicate to his sons, to his descendants, is that God's grace overcomes sin and weakness. This is the second thing that he communicates, and he does so in chapter 49 through this beautiful poem that he recites as he pronounces blessing upon his sons. I don't know if he wrote this out as a poem and read it, or if he memorized this as a poem, we can't necessarily see the, the beauty of, of the poetry. This is Hebrew poetry. I don't know Hebrew. Most of us probably don't know Hebrew. But Jacob recites this beautiful poem as he pronounces blessing on his 12 sons. And one thing that we're going to see, we're not going to look at every, every son. We don't, we don't have time to cover this exhaustively. But I, what I do want us to observe is God's grace and his righteousness on full display 
in Jacob's prophetic blessing on his sons as we see it in a few specific examples. The portrait we have of Jacob's family up to this point is one of dysfunction, jealousy, hatred, murder. But now in Israel's proclamation of blessing, we see in spite of that, God's grace overcoming that. God's still blessing these sons. Again, maybe in ways that we would not expect. You can imagine the children of Israel several hundred years later as they stand on the brink of the promised land that they are going to re-enter, having come out of Egypt. And they read this for the first time. And you can, you can perhaps see them, the kind of light in some cases going on in their heads, explaining why things are the way they are. For instance, why, why is Reuben's family not the prominent family in Israel? He was the oldest after all. Why is Ephraim's family so prominent? He wasn't even one of Jacob's own sons. But here they are, these these sons of Jacob gathered around his bed. And it's almost as if they're gathered and grouped by their mothers. Because this is the way that that Jacob works through them. He, He begins with Leah's sons. These were the oldest of his sons. Then he moves to the sons of his his, um, the, of their handmaids. And it's almost as if they're actually grouped together. The order that it takes in the middle of chapter 49 is not strictly birth order. But instead, it, it almost seems to make the point that those four sons of the, of the handmaids were grouped together. And, and this is actually understandable when we consider that the, these guys may not have even expected to receive a blessing from, from Jacob. They weren't even the children of, of one of his two wives. They were just, they, their moms were the handmaids of these wives. Maybe they were shocked to even receive a blessing. And then it concludes with Rachel's two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. But I want us to see primarily, for our, for our sake today, these first four sons as, as God through Jacob pronounces blessing, and in some cases, judgment upon these sons, Leah's sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Look with me in chapter 49, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. This should have been the pronouncement of blessing upon the oldest son. This should have been a great occasion for Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob. But instead, because of his wicked rebellion earlier in his life, Jacob instead pronounces a curse upon him. You will not have the preeminence. You will not have the birthright. We read earlier in chapter 48 that when Jacob was blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, he said, they are going to be my sons as Reuben and Simeon are. A statement that Reuben and Simeon had forfeited their right to receive the blessing of the firstborn. 
And we, we saw earlier in the book of Genesis, Reuben rebelling, sinfully rebelling in a wicked act, going into his father's wife. And here, Jacob, as he speaks this prophetic word from God, says that Reuben had forfeited, because of his sins, had forfeited the right of blessing. Let's move on to to verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. We've alluded to this, these verses earlier when we saw the actions that Simeon and Levi took in murdering the men of Shechem. And here Jacob describes these as, as violent, violent men who go out and kill men. And they also, it, this last phrase in verse 6, they're willing, in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen, oxen, a statement of cruelty to the animals even. These were violent and cruel men who though they were defending the honor of their sister, the honor of their family, went out and destroyed an entire city all the men of that city, out of, out of revenge. And here they are, paired together. And God says that He will divide them in Jacob. He will scatter them in Israel because of their sin, because of their willful rebellion and their sin, because of the actions that they took. But I want us to see that though there is God's righteous judgment pronounced upon them. We also see God's grace even hinted at here. And we will see it played out as the tribes grow and as, as their, their nation is instituted. First, I want us to consider Simeon. What happened to Simeon? Well, Joshua 19 describes the, the results of the lot that were cast where these tribes would receive the land once they had got, entered the promised land. Joshua Joshua 19, verses 1 and 9 says, The second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans, and their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah. Because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. So what happens is basically... Simeon, the land that the tribe of Simeon receives is simply a part of Judah's inheritance. It's almost that Judah's inheritance was was so large, it was too large for them, so here, let's give a little bit of it to Simeon. And if you look at a map of the 12 tribes, the way that it's typically mapped out, you see the tribe of Judah with this circle for Simeon right in the middle of it. It's almost as if God is making the point that Simeon, the tribe of Simeon's land, was not really their own. It, this was Judah's land that they were, they were simply inhabiting. A fulfillment of God's prophecy here, verse 7 of Genesis 49, that he would divide and scatter these tribes in Israel. Later on in First Chronicles, it records that the tribe of Simeon actually did at, at one point scatter to other cities 
throughout the, the land of Israel. In, in Israel's pronouncement here of this scattering, we see on, the, on Simeon's hand that this was obviously a, a righteous judgment from God. But in, in the instance of Levi, we see God graciously working in a way, again, that we would not expect. Because what does God do? Later on, Joshua 14 describes again some of this inheritance of the land as it's laid out once they enter the promised land. Joshua 14, beginning in verse 1, says this, These are the inheritance that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, as the heads of the father's house of the tribes of the people of Israel, gave to them to inheritance. To inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord commanded the hand commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. Okay, this is fulfillment of this prophecy. Israel did not get an inheritance. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. And so we see very clearly that the tribe of Levi was scattered throughout the land. They didn't even have what the tribe of Simeon had, which was one piece of land that they could essentially call theirs. Instead, the tribe of Levi just had cities completely scattered throughout. But I'm sure you already can anticipate the grace of God as he made Levi the the, the tribe of priests. And so their role as they were scattered was to be those which went into the presence of the Lord and offered sacrifices for God's people. So in spite of the fact that God pronounces a judgment upon the tribe of Levi to scatter them throughout the land because of their forefather Levi's vengeful killing and anger and cruelty, we see God being gracious to this tribe in enabling them to be the tribe of priests those ones who, who offer the sacrifices for the people. They would not have a possession of land for themselves. Instead, these, these cities throughout the land. But as we find out later, God says the Lord would be their portion. They would not have a portion of land to speak of, but the Lord himself would be their portion. I believe this is a beautiful picture of God's grace in the midst of his judgment. Again, revealing that God's grace overcomes sin and weakness. Now the first of two focal points in this poetic blessing of chapter 49, beginning in verse 8. Jacob says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. 
the three oldest sons had been passed over for the blessing of the firstborn. Joseph's sons had replaced them in that position. But here it's Judah, the fourth, who receives the promise, the honor of the royal line. This is the line that that Israel, in their later history, this is the line that their kings came from, the tribe of Judah. This was the line of David and Solomon and on and on and on. Jacob begins by saying that your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons, speaking of the entire nation of Israel, would bow down to the tribe of Judah as the one who bore the kings of the people. Now, why does Judah receive this blessing? Because, again, if you're thinking along here, we also have Judah, we have record of Judah with severe failings as well, right? Sure, we saw it in the, in the case of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, but Judah, he failed just as great as his three older brothers. So why does Judah receive this blessing and yet the other three had been passed over? Again, I, I believe this is simply God's grace. And to go back to the, to the first thought we had, that God works in ways that we do not expect. But I also think even from Judah's perspective, I think we see in Judah's life more so than any of the other three older brothers. We see Judah in living a life of repentance. You remember it was Judah that encouraged his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery to make a profit. But then later on when they, when they go to, to Egypt during the famine, it's Judah that speaks up. He sticks up for his younger brother Benjamin. And I think we can consistently see later on in Judah's life that he is actually exhibiting a heart of repentance that the other three brothers did not. And so because he seems to be repentant, and also because God is indiscriminately gracious to those who do not deserve his grace, God bestows upon Judah the the blessing of being the royal line. But there's more to this blessing than just the fact that Judah's descendants will be kings. This prophecy reveals to us a specific king who would come in the future. Verse 10 records this for us. And it's a little bit difficult to translate this verse is. There's lots of discussion that has taken place over the centuries of what this verse, this means. This phrase The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. What does this phrase, until tribute comes to him, mean? And I think the best translation, actually, as I have studied through it this last week, is actually the translation that is given in the Holman Christian Standard and also in the NIV, where it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. I believe this reveals to us that there is a coming king who, whose right it is to sit on the throne. The obedience of the people, it's his right to receive the obedience of the people. And I think this is, this is important for us to consider when we consider what we just talked about. Judah and his descendants who are kings. 
really, in and of themselves, those guys did not deserve to be a king. Those guys did not deserve the obedience of the peoples. They did not, in and of themselves, deserve to sit on the throne. It was a bestowal of God's grace. But there is one who would come, who did deserve and would deserve to sit on the throne and to rule over his people. He has that right because of who he is. And I believe this is the third explicit reference in the book of Genesis to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. The first reference was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when in the garden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God promised that a seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent. Then we also see in chapter 22, God speaking to Abraham, and he says that there would be a, that in Abraham's descendants, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And then here at the end of Genesis, we see another reference to Christ coming, this time as a king, as one who rule, and who has a right to sit on the throne, one to whom the obedience of peoples must belong to. And the rest of Scripture will continue to unveil this coming king, the one to whom we must all bow down to. And so as we consider our responsibility to proclaim, to testify of God's faithfulness, this certainly should be part of that that testimony to others, that there is a king that we all must bow down to. So do those within our sphere of influence know that? Do the people that we come in contact with, do they know that there is a king to whom we must pledge our allegiance? And it's not an earthly king. This is a, a heavenly king who took, on, who took on human flesh, has conquered sin and death and now rules and reigns. He is the creator and we must all bow down to him. We must all submit to him. In fact, one day we will all submit to him. But do those that we have contact with know this truth? Do we tell people about this king that one day they will certainly bow down before? Do we plead with them to submit to him now before it's too late? Again, parents, do your children know about this king? Do you live in such a way that you are evidencing this submission to your king? Or again, do you give off the impression that you are the one that's in charge? Or do they see us submitting to Christ, to to his rule? Are you content to maintain friendships with unbelievers and never bring up the need for them to submit to Christ before it's too late? I hope that we will see the importance of proclaiming this king, this descendant of Israel, this descendant of the tribe of Judah, whose kingdom would reach beyond simply the ethnic people of Israel, but would include all those whom God has brought into his kingdom through faith. This is the ultimate example of God's grace overcoming sin and weakness. And it's even the ultimate example of God's grace being mixed 
with his righteous judgment? Are we communicating that reality, that message? Jacob goes on to bless his other sons. We don't have time to look at each of these individually, but we see accurate descriptions of what his sons would become as they grew into tribes, into people. And as we come to the end, toward the end of chapter 49, toward the end of this pronouncement of blessing, we see Joseph included. And he does not so much prophesy of what the tribe of Joseph would become because what we've seen already is that really Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were the ones who became the tribes in Israel. But what we see Jacob talk about as he pronounces blessing on on Joseph, rather, is really a, a restatement of what God has done through Joseph. Let's read beginning in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the, of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father, and mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who it was set apart from his brothers. So Jacob testifies again to God's faithfulness. He uses these beautiful names for God here. The mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And these are personal references that he is speaking. Jacob has has now reached the point where he, he understands, he comprehends that God was his mighty one, his stone, his rock throughout his life and would be for his people as they continued on. And so he pronounces blessing upon his sons. And then we see that Jacob dies and just as he had pleaded with his son Joseph to do, Joseph and his family take Jacob, the body of Jacob, out of Egypt and bury him in the burial place where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac had already been buried in the promised land. And so Jacob actually experiences the fact that God has kept his promise to the end. This is the third reality that we must realize and and testify of as we Think of God's faithfulness. We see exhibited here the the fulfillment of God's promises. God keeps his promises to the end. And you remember back when, after Joseph's brothers had come to Egypt, after they found food, after Joseph had revealed himself to them, God tells Jacob to go ahead and go into Egypt during the famine. And you remember what God told him at that point? He said, go ahead and go into Egypt, but I will bring you back out. I will bring you to this land that I have promised you. I can imagine Jacob had some doubt when God was telling him to actually go into Egypt. Here here he was in the land, and you remember what the significance of the land was. We saw that even in, in earlier in Jacob's life where he 
made an incomplete journey, had not yet reached the promised land, and, and we saw difficulty come because of that. And so now he's actually dwelling in the promised land, and God tells him to leave it. But with that command, God promises to bring him back. And even here, though it's after his death, so though he did not experience that journey in life, we see that God, in fact, fulfilled his promise to Jacob. Jacob returned to the promised land. God brought him back, and he was buried in that promised land. God keeps his promises. Are we communicating to others? Do we realize, do we believe that God keeps his promise? Have we experienced the fact that God has kept his promise? I think so. I think all of us could probably testify to this reality that God keeps his promises. God is faithful to us. Even in spite of our own sin and failure and weakness, God is still faithful to us. God still keeps his promises. We see a also in chapter 50 as we move ahead after Jacob is buried we see Joseph's see Joseph's brothers still still seem to to have a, a sense of guilt for their sin against him. I mean this this seems rather unbelievable because it, it's been 17 years since they had come to Egypt since they had known about how God had used Joseph. And yet here they are after Jacob's death, they're still worried that Joseph is going to mete out revenge against them because of what they did to him. But now it's Joseph's turn to testify of God keeping his promises. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Does that sound familiar? the dreams that God had given to Joseph. Here they are again, bowing before him, testifying that they are his servants. But what does Joseph tell them? Verse 19, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We see a couple things. We see first that God, that dream that God gave to Joseph, however many years before, God was still bringing that about. We still see God working in a way that Joseph's brothers submit to him, bow down before him. God kept his word. And God will continue to keep his promises to his people. Let's finish up reading chapter 50 because I believe it summarizes here in the words of Joseph. Promising them, reminding them that God would be with them. God would keep his promise. Verse 22, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. 
Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Again, last words. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so now we come to Joseph's final words. What is it that Joseph wants to communicate in his dying moment? He wants to remind his sons, his descendants, that God will continue to be with them. God will bring them up out of the land of Egypt. God will, in fact, bring them back into the promised land. And he makes them swear that when God does that, God will, he makes them swear that they will take his body and bury it in the promised land along with his ancestors before him that were buried there. And we know from reading later in Scripture that these children of Israel receiving these words for the first time had those bones in their possession as they were journeying back to the promised land. You can imagine as they had this box of bones, as they read these words, I mean, how their hearts must have been encouraged to, to consider that God had kept his promise. They were, they were bringing back the bones of Joseph because God had kept his promise. Joseph knew that, and he told his descendants that. And here they were bringing those bones back, and as they did so, could be reminded that God had kept his promise. God had, was bringing them back into the land that he had promised for them. What I want us to leave this passage with is that God is faithful. We have seen from Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 50 the faithfulness of God. We've seen lots of other stuff. But we've seen above all of that and in spite a lot of it that God remained faithful to his people. God was interested in the good of his people. God was interested in blessing his people. And he worked throughout the book to accomplish that for his own glory. Because as we consider the people that God dealt with in the book of Genesis, we saw all kinds of people. Broken people, sinful people. They were all sinful. They were all broken. But yet God overcame all of that to accomplish his purpose in them for his glory. And now we, we read this testimony both of, of Jacob and Joseph, their testimony of God's faithfulness to them. We read this and we are reminded of all that we have learned up to this point, all that we've studied from the book of Genesis. And we can be reminded of that as well. We can be confident that God will keep his promises to us. We can be reminded that God will be faithful to us, that God works in ways that are different than, than we might expect. God's grace overcomes all of our sin and our weakness. The book of Genesis is really simply a book of beginnings. There's a lot that follows in the Bible after the book of Genesis. But this book of beginnings lays the foundation for what God would do through 
and for his people throughout history. And I think we have seen enough and we, we, we've, we've understood enough from the book of Genesis to be convinced that God is faithful. As God moved and worked through history, he brought that king, that, that one descendant of the tribe of Judah. He brought that one, the one whose right it is to sit upon the throne, to rule. That one is Jesus Christ. And God has worked in such a way to send His Son to offer up Himself on our behalf. And we have the opportunity to commemorate that work together today as we partake of of the Lord's table. And I am reminded as we consider those three explicit prophecies of the the Christ, of the Messiah from Genesis, we, we saw at the beginning that this would be one who conquered the devil conquered sin, overcame that, that, all that sin that that first sin originated. And that, that one would also be a king. And I, as, as I consider those things, I'm reminded of the book of Revelation where John, in his vision, sees a, a lion-like lamb, a lamb-like lion in heaven, a lamb having been slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, And I think we have reason to rejoice because that lion of the tribe of Judah, that king, did something. He came and was slain as a lamb on our behalf so that we would be able to submit to him as as grateful subjects of his rather than submitting to him in judgment. We have the opportunity through Christ to be ruled by a gracious and loving king the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so I, I ask all of us as we come to the table, as we partake of these elements, as we remember Christ's work on our behalf, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for us, that we would rejoice in this because God has rescued us from our sin. God has overcome our sin by his grace. And now we, we live under his good and gracious rule. And by his work on the cross, we can come in repentance. We can find forgiveness. And we can continue to be changed into subjects that more closely resemble our master, Jesus Christ.